0: Thanks for listening to A Long Time in Finance with Jonathan Ford and Neil Collins, in partnership with Briefcase News, the service that brings intelligent curation and analysis to your media montage. Who owns the wires that send electricity into your house, or the pipes that swoosh in the water supply? A generation ago, most Britons would have known the local state-owned electricity or water board. But nowadays, it could be anyone. Last year, many people in Britain were amazed to find that the people billing them for power were little more than a couple of likely lads with a laptop, alternatively known as bulb energy. Most water companies these days are owned by international infrastructure funds. For example, Anglian Water, which supplies, as its name suggests, East Anglia, is owned by a consortium including... IFM and IGNEO, two Australian fund managers, CPPIB, a giant Canadian pension fund, OGLIL, an organisation representing some UK local authority pension schemes, and INFINITY, an Abu Dhabi investment vehicle. But what's the problem? Many people would say they don't care who owns the water or electricity as long as the service is reliable and efficient. But here's the rub. The private sector doesn't have a great record of either. And when it cocks things up, it can leave big messes behind. For instance, when Bulb went bust last year, it ended up costing the taxpayer several billion. Now, one person who's thought a lot about this trend is Brett Christophers, author of a new book called Our Lives in Their Portfolios, about this trend of asset managers Owning infrastructure, and it comes out on the 25th of April. So, welcome, Brett. Thank you, both of
1: you, for having me on. I'm delighted to be here. Now, in your book, you see this
0: trend towards funds investing in infrastructure as a problematic one. But let's start by trying to define infrastructure. What is it that they're investing in?
1: Essentially, the way I understand infrastructure in the book is the physical building blocks that enable daily life to function. And so that includes the real estate in which we live. But then there's also all other types of essential infrastructure. So that can be social infrastructure, such as hospitals and schools. It can be energy infrastructure, anything from a wind farm to an electricity transmission grid, water infrastructure, which you've already referred to and various types of transportation infrastructure would be, and telecommunications infrastructure would be other ones as well. So it's the basic physical essential stuff that enables us to go about our daily lives.
0: And apart from being essential, does it have any other characteristics which make it special in your view?
1: I think the one that's very, very important, as, as well as, as obviously being essential, is that it's fixed in place it's 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 not something that can be you know just picked up and moved so infrastructure investment is kind of is sunk in space so and it takes typically quite large amounts of upfront uh, investment to build it in the first place and then often also large amounts of investment to keep it in relatively good order over time as well so it tends to be a long term investment typically as well as an investment that's sunk in a, in a particular place
0: So not particularly amenable to competition.
1: That's definitely true. And as as I'm sure you know, one of the ways in which mainstream economists refer to various types of the infrastructure is they refer to it with with the concept of natural monopoly. And what they mean by that is that a monopoly provision is the lowest cost or most efficient solution because it would be inefficient to supply, to provide, for example, duplicating sets of pipes to provide water it's much lower cost to just have one infrastructure provider doing that.
0: I read your book with great interest. And it seemed to me that you weren't necessarily saying that private owners per se shouldn't own infrastructure. But you did have a view that these fund managers, professional investors who are investing directly in these assets, were really problematic from your perspective. Perhaps you can tell us a bit about how they got into this area and also a bit about why you see them as problematic investors.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are t- those are two huge, two or <laughs> two or three huge questions there. Yeah, sorry. So let, yeah, as you say, it's, I think it, it's it's helpful to kind of disaggregate them and take them in turn. Sure. So th- the first question, as you say, is the historical one. If you go back to the relatively early days of asset management as a large capitalist business in the nineteen seventies and nineteen eighties. What asset managers did was they invested in financial assets. They invested in, in shares and they invested in bonds and they invested in cash. So they took the money from the investors who they represent, which is typically pension funds, insurance companies, and increasingly sovereign wealth funds. And for a fee, they invested that money in the shares of whoever it happened to be, General Electric or the debt of the US government or whatever else it might be, and they earned their fees. From the 1980s onwards, they began to diversify in terms of their asset holdings, these asset managers. And primarily in the 1980s, that meant real estate and it meant commercial real estate. So shopping centers, factories, office buildings, hotels, and so on. But then from really the beginning to the middle of the 1990s, there was a further kind of wave of diversification. And what that meant was that asset managers expanded into the two sets of asset classes that I look at in this book, both of which come under the term of infrastructure, but which I separate out, one of which is housing, so residential accommodation, and then all the other forms of infrastructure that we talked about, whether that's energy or transportation or telecommunications. And they did that partly in a kind of a push sense and partly in a pull sense. So there was an opportunity opened up to do so because around large parts of the world, a lot of infrastructure that had previously been owned by the state, which had been publicly owned, was privatized, which meant there was a need for new owners and new investors. But there was also a dynamic on the other side, which was that the clients that the asset managers represent were asking for and and calling for diversification. And they saw housing and infrastructure as a potentially interesting and attractive asset class.
2: Interesting you, you should talk about housing, where in the UK the institutional involvement is quite modest, but the pinch point really for our domestic listeners is the other utilities, water, power, railways, and the systems which are now proving themselves to be in serious difficulty one way and another
1: that's ap- that's absolutely correct i mean in a sense the historical story was was in the us for example was the almost kind of the opposite of the uk so in the us it was kind of a residential housing story initially for asset managers because a lot of infrastructure remained publicly owned but in the uk It was an infrastructure story. And the reason there is that a lot of the housing is owned by small-time landlords. And so there weren't really opportunities for significant acquisitions at scale for asset managers. Mm.
0: Just to stick with the asset manager theme, is this a wholly novel phenomenon? You've got private owners of assets going right back into time, particularly of residential property, for example, or agricultural property who've been regarded as bad owners. What's particularly novel about your analysis of what's happening with the fund managers coming into these essential areas?
1: What I absolutely didn't want to do in the book was sort of reproduce a kind of vanilla critique of private ownership of of these forms of infrastructure. As you say, there's a long history of private ownership of essential infrastructure of various types. And there's also a long history of critiques you know, put my cards on the table, I think there are certain types of infrastructure where private ownership is completely inappropriate. And I think that's been shown time and time again. But what I wanted to do in the book is say, well, what's particular about this model? If we're going to make criticisms, are there kind of critical observations we can make that are specific to this type of ownership and this type of control? So what we're talking about is asset management firms, the likes of Blackstone and BlackRock, KKR and, and others, and Macquarie are big ones, obviously, setting up investment funds, which are kind of collective investment vehicles into which their clients, third party investors like pension schemes and insurance companies, commit large amounts of, of money into those funds, which the asset management fund then invests on their behalf. And so, while well, we'll often hear that you know, Blackstone has bought such and such an asset, or Macquarie has bought you know, this transmit electricity transmission grid. That's actually not really what's happening, right? It's the investment vehicle that is buying it. And it's a vehicle managed by Macquarie. But the money in which is almost all not Macquarie or Blackstone or BlackRock's money, typically only about 2% of it or even less of it is the money of the asset manager. They are investing on others' behalf, and they are collecting fees for doing that.
2: Playing advocate for a minute. Leaving the question of this, the fees to one side, there is a perfectly respectable intellectual case for a long-term fund, a long-term pension fund, where the liabilities stretch out into decades, putting the capital into long-term assets. I think this is often lost sight of. The pension funds are probably one of the most sensible buyers for the sort of infrastructure that we're talking about
0: but, but Neil he's talking about fund managers as opposed to pension funds and 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 I think that's the distinction which you're trying to get at, the, the fact that they, they, are, well, hang they are the intermediaries. Well, hang on. Of course
2: they are. But, you know, I was leaving that to one side. The, uh, my point is that they are in many ways natural owners of these assets.
1: I mean, to, to address your, that particular point head on, you know, one of the arguments that's often made both by pension schemes for why they want to invest in infrastructure and by Advocates of such investment for why pension schemes are indeed appropriate for investors is that long-termism. And I don't necessarily disagree with that argument. There are certain types of pension schemes, particularly Canadian pension schemes, for reasons we needn't get into, that are prolific investors directly in infrastructure. But most pension schemes and most sovereign wealth funds and most insurance companies investing in infrastructure do not do so directly. They do so indirectly via asset managers. And most of the investment funds launched by asset managers through which they invest are not long term funds. They are predominantly closed end, short term limited life funds, where the asset manager takes the money and over three or four years invest that money. But almost as soon as they have invested that money, their principal concern becomes how can we rapidly sell that asset at a profit? Because our fund has a fixed 10-year life. And by the end of that 10 years, we have to have sold all our assets and returned all the money with a profit to our investors. So there's a fundamental mismatch.
2: So, so why do you think that the people who are in charge of making these decisions fall into this rather obvious trap? What do you mean, trap? Who's trap? No, well, it's, an obviously, it's obviously a trap because, of exactly as you said, they are long-term funds, but they are seduced or encouraged or bullied into putting their money into what are essentially short-term vehicles.
0: Why do they give their money to an asset manager rather than invest it directly, is the question. The main reason
1: is that investment in infrastructure and real estate, but particularly infrastructure, is a complicated, time-consuming and complex business. It's not like investing in you know, a financial asset index fund. If you want to make an investment in a particular infrastructure asset, the amount of due diligence that needs to go into that and the amount of time that it takes to actually manage that investment is very, very costly, very time consuming. Often it would take tens of millions of dollars just to do the due diligence to be able to make the investment. So very, very few major investors out there, very few pension schemes or sovereign wealth funds have the scale and wherewithal in terms of their investment teams to invest directly in infrastructure which is why they tend to invest via asset managers much more when it comes to infrastructure than when it comes to other types of assets.
0: Obviously, it takes two to make these deals. And one of the things you touch on in the book is the fact that part of the reason this whole process gets supercharged in the 1990s and the asset managers come to the party very excitedly is the fact that you have a lot of privatisation of assets which were historically run by the state. The idea driving this privatisation, and I think of our own beloved water and electricity companies, was that there were going to be great efficiency savings to be made by putting these assets out of the hands of the local water board or whatever and into the hands of the private sector. Now, Capitalism 101 would say that the reason why the asset managers have been so successful is because they were good at running these businesses. They've made lots of money out of it. (laughs) and therefore become being able to hoover up most of them because they they do a jolly good job. What part of that little syllogism I've just offered you is untrue?
2: (laughs) Most of it. (laughs) I would
1: say that most parts of it are untrue. I mean, you know, all the research suggests that from the consumer side, it has not been successful process particularly in water and electricity I mean I think telecoms is probably the one example of where privatization has arguably been a success from the consumer perspective and that 's mainly because mobile came along and yeah. kind of it's competition provided proper competition
2: as an aside for telecoms it's quite interesting that although it has I think been pretty successful from the consumer's point of view the investors in Vodafone and bt have done really badly
1: and the two are linked obviously absolutely so from the consumer side it it hasn't been a success but i think the other two points to make are these so one is that to the extent that efficiency gains have been made consumers have not reaped the benefits of those efficiency gains and secondly and i think and related to that is part of the way they've done that is through very, very clever forms of financial engineering, you know, the the ways in which regulators have set pricing mechanisms within those infrastructure sectors have assumed certain capital structures, certain relationships between debt and equity that have proven not to be the ones that have been used. And by loading up a lot of these companies with debt, the asset managers have been able to kind of cream off all sorts of excess gains that, that regulators had kind of assumed wouldn't be available to
0: them. Yeah, I just want to illustrate there's a there's a very interesting example in your book of a ho- housing development in San Francisco called Summer House. I think it changes its name a bit like uh, Sellerfield or something every now and then. <laughs> no one can remember how awful it was in the past. And basically, this is a development which has passed through several asset managers hands they've all followed what you refer to in the book as the golden rule, which is raise rents as far as you possibly can and cut capital expenditure as close to zero as you can get it. And yet you watch the progression of the asset value of this thing as it changes hands over the years, and it it sort of triples in value. And is that simply because basically this is essentially a near monopoly asset? The tenants have to lump it and pay up because that's where they live. There are no good alternatives for them. So they're just trapped in this this sort of hellscape.
1: Yeah, I mean I think there's a couple of things to say there. You know, one of the things that's interesting is you do is that in this landscape, you do see as you say this kind of ceaseless churn where assets are owned by one asset manager one year or the next year and then by another asset manager 3 years later, which was certainly what the case with that particular housing asset in California but also you know, classically care, certain care home chains in the UK. And I think that possibly some of those asset managers would have wanted to remain owners if they had invested through investment vehicles that enabled them to, but they were kind of under a requirement to sell them because these, these funds were coming to the end of their natural life. They kind of had to to sell out. I think from the user side, I think it depends on the asset a little bit. With housing, some types of tenant, do have often options to move elsewhere certain types of tenants do not have such options obviously but certainly with particular certain types of infrastructure assets you know there is no alternative right if you're if you're a te- if you're a customer of Thames water you're a customer of tens water you don't get to choose who your supplier of water is and i think the regulators have not defended the interest of those customers in any of these industries they have consistently favoured the companies that they are supposed to be regulating over time.
2: Yeah, can I bring you back to that in the UK, particularly in the context of water? It seems to me that the regulator and the environment agency between them have very substantial powers to interfere, to force the water companies to behave better, to pollute less, and to make sure that the leaks are fixed and all that sort of thing. But why is it that they clearly seem to have failed to use those powers? They don't need new legislation, they just need to use what they've got. Have they been captured by the water companies?
1: You know, I've been working on these types of questions for a long, a long time now. And that's the only reasonable conclusion that I can come to, it's quite clear that, you know, when new methodologies are come up with for deciding how prices are going, to be, are going to be set in some of these regulated sectors, that, you know, the regulators do so in close conversation with the companies. You know, I think it's clearly a sector in which the, 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 the line between the regulator on the one hand and the participant on the other is not a clear line. It's a very, very blurred line. I think it, it is a sector that where the regulatory capture has, has, clearly, has clearly happened.
0: I think that's right. I think there's a kind of macro thing which feeds into what we've just been talking about, which is, I think you have to go right back to the kind of impetus for a lot of the privatisations, which was governments became very obsessed by the idea that there was this enormous amount of infrastructure that needed to be funded in their economies. And they didn't want to have to take responsibility for managing and financing the provision of it. I think that has created a kind of mindset, which is exactly what you described, that it's all about how on earth can we persuade reluctant private sector players to take this risk. And there's another thing which I very much saw when I was writing in a, year, a few years ago about the water industry, was the fact that the approach of the asset managers, the people who own these businesses is very much that there's a kind of acquis. Once they've established a rule or a treatment by the regulator, that becomes banked as a permanent fixture. And every time there's a problem, the answer is for the government to add to the acquis by making another concession. And as soon as you suggest that there needs to be a rollback, they say, well, of course, then the whole game will be over. No one will ever invest in this asset class again. And governments have bought into this. I actually honestly don't believe it's true.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. I agree with you. It's worth saying that, of course, the governments before privatisation of these industries were not model proprietors. <laughs> no. you know, A lot of them were in a really poor state. I'd be interested to hear your views, but I don't think nationalisation would solve anything. It would just replace one set of problems with an even worse one.
1: The very last thing I want to do is kind of take a simplistic privatisation, bad, nationalisation, good, because I think that it is simplistic and, and reductionistic. I think part of the reason why we see assets under ownership by these types of investment firms being kind of ransacked for rent, you know, with maximum income being extracted from them and minimum cost being undertaken is because the nature of the asset management model requires that to be the case. So investment funds raise money from investors By promising them higher returns than they are able to get through, you know, bog standard investment in other asset classes. And the way they recruit their investment professionals is by offering them higher salaries, higher bonuses than they're able to get from going to work for McKinsey or let alone even Goldman Sachs or whoever else it might be. I read that the average salary at Blackstone, the average earnings across its whatever, three or four thousand employees was $2 million a year. And that's the average. Well, you, can't <laughs> you, want, you wonder that's who's that's paying a, for that, don't enough. you? Well, <laughs> yeah, but the, point, the point I want to make is a very simple point. You can't pay those salaries and you can't deliver your investors an IRR after fees of 12% per annum, unless you are Absolutely maximizing income extraction from the asset. It goes with the territory. You so can't... totally get that. But one of
0: the things is that those benefits don't go to the pension funds. <laughs> now, I've no. looked at I've looked at the returns that the pension funds are getting from these sort of asset management structures, and then they're really no better than they get from the financial assets, which they got so bored with investing in. So that raises a question. Why on earth are they put up with it?
2: It's the triumph of hope over experience, I'm afraid.
0: <laughs> or madness.
1: I think that is a huge part of it. My guess is that when, these, when the investment committees of the big US public pension funds or whoever else it might be sit down, they say, well, we'll stick with 90% of our allocation to, to stocks and bonds. We'll put the other 15% in a mix of... Private equity, hedge funds, infrastructure, real estate, in the hope rather than necessarily the expectation that we will get those higher returns that they consistently prom- promise us. You know, hope springs eternal. Well, they, 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 they were, were better in the on... past,
0: as most things were. I think Neil can agree.
2: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I disagree with that. Uh, thank okay, you. Fair enough. Uh, now,
0: now, let's let's go on to the solutions, because, I mean, the simplest solution would be for obviously for all the pension funds who are doing this business to say, use their market power to cut the fees. Tell the asset managers no more performance fees. We don't want these 10 year deals. We want things which match our, our horizons. Would that solve the problem?
1: I, I, I don't see why. It shouldn't in the long term. But as, as in the case of the relationship between you know, industry regulators and the, you know, and the water and electricity industries, there's so much inertia locked into the nature of these relatively long term industry relationships and industry structures. In my sense, is that there tends to be a significant degree of path dependence that reproduces these industry structures over time and significant political support. Obviously, as, as well.
2: Yeah, I think it's. Well, they pay I think it's actually partners. worse than that because, of course, you will remember that last year, Ofwat imposed price formulae on the water companies, three of whom appealed to the Competition Authority, and the Competition Authority overruled Ofwat essentially. So, in other words, Ofwat was trying to. Behave like a proper regulator and was essentially put back in its box by the Competition and Markets Authority. And I think that's a terrible precedent. If I was at the off what I would say, well, you know, I've been emasculated by that.
1: And think, you know, in the asset management context, think about what happened with the Inflation Reduction Act in the US last year, right? When that was first announced, one of the ways in which the two sponsors of that act, one of the ways in which they said that that public expenditure was going to be funded was by curtailing the particular performance fees that private equity and other asset managers principally rely on, which is the the carried interest performance fee, which is the main performance fee I've been talking about. The one significant change in the bill from when it became an act was that was struck down.
0: The area where I think, uh, where I agree with you, and I think you're definitely onto something, and you see this very much in the power sector, where you have a desire in America and Britain, particularly to move to market structures. So to break up the grid between generators, distributors, the owners of the grid, create markets which will theoretically get the cheapest price for the electricity which then scootles through the system to the user. The fundamental problem with this of course is that it removes any overwatch if you like of the whole system. What you end up with is a sort of fragmented sort of system where people are being remunerated on different deals. You know you have incentive structures to achieve build lots and lots of wind turbines So I think one role for the state is absolutely to take control and have sufficient power to determine what is the cheapest way for the customer to get what they absolutely need, which is sufficient
2: electricity. You could call this person a regulator.
0: Well, I think you actually do need sometimes the actual power to bring about investment. The other example I would give nuclear power, for example – it's clear that these risks, this is just infrastructure writ extremely large. It's just the state needs to enable investments to happen. And that requires it to be more than just a regulator. It needs to be, to some extent, dread word, a planner.
2: I think nuclear is a, a unique case. Because there is so much mythology about the risks,
0: I don't agree. In energy, it's lots of these cases. The storage, look, the look at the gas storage thing that closed.
2: That's hydro, hydro,
1: hydro, doesn't get built by somebody in an afternoon. I totally agree with that. All I wanted, all I, I guess, all I, all I'd want to kind of add, I think the power sector is more than anywhere else. That's where infrastructure investment is going to be focused, both in terms of both on the generation side. Partly in conventional assets, but more and more in, in renewables assets, but also obviously on the transmission and distribution side. I mean, it's pretty obvious that our grids around the world are not up to scratch to incorporating, you know, the, the massive amounts of new generating capacity and the, and the capacity of different kind of stochastic types that is coming on stream now. That's where these questions around asset ownership in the infrastructure space are going to be particularly focused in the coming years.
0: The one thing that does strike me with all these things is that this idea that you can sidestep through the de-risking process, the inevitable fact that there are political decisions involved in these, whether about pricing, provision, you just can't escape it.
2: Well, since the political pressure is always going to be on minimising the cost in the current climate then i don't see how that's going to solve any of the long-term problems on that cheery note (laughs) (laughs) he's very gloomy (laughs) can't you
0: say something to cheer him up brett i wish i
2: could (laughs) (laughs) that was a long time in finance with jonathan ford and neil collins Production and editing by Nick Hilton and our sponsorship partner is briefcase.news. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review it on your podcast app as that will help new listeners find us.